Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. We started the Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff to read, there is a lot, but we are all very busy and we don't have time to sit and read. Everyone working in schools need training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. It's often just the Sendcast getting trained. We want to help schools more inclusive. We want them teachers to be teachers of SEND and we want to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast lets us get the same consistent message to schools and parents to really help the pupils. Every week on the Sendcast we have a guest on to talk about something they are passionate about. And this week we're talking about how pupils can share their own personal narrative through stories. I'm discussing these metaphors with my guest, Dr. Trisha Walters. Trisha is an educational therapist and director of the Center for Therapeutic Storywriting. Now, the Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared, and over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEMD. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we have focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus, because it is really needed. But we've also seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for all staff in schools around SEMD. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started a couple of years ago with the virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing exclusive SENDcast discount code, so please keep listening. Now, let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing using metaphors within stories to support emotional literacy. Um, we're going to be discussing this with my guest, Dr. Trisha Walters. Trisha is an educational therapist, and Trisha began her career supporting pupils with emotional behavioral difficulties. And after that, she moved on to lead the MA in SEN and Inclusion at the University of Chichester. And now she is a director of the Center for Therapeutic Story Writing. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Hi, Dale. Thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome. Um, we all love stories and telling stories. And the stories we tell often reflect our own experiences or emotions. And we often use metaphors to express ourselves, don't we? Yeah, I mean, um, metaphor permeates our lives, doesn't it? From stories we read, books, our own dream images are a um, metaphor about things that have happened in our lives. And um, children, particularly young children, it's almost as though metaphor is their natural language. You know, very young children, they sort of spin out make-believe stories. They imitate the adults around them and they try to make sense of, of um, their experience through their make-believe play. And I see stories, children's stories, as they move into that young children coming through, junior age children, that stories are also can be when they're creative stories and children have the space to explore a metaphor that's relevant to them can also be a way to help them make sense of their experiences. Okay. So um, going on a different, completely different tangent, but just a thought that entered my head. So I'm going to ask it. Um, 
when children are choosing books, when they're talking about favorite characters, are they often, they're often children, they are characters they can relate to. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think um, children today are exposed to more imagery and metaphor probably than any children in history. You know, and it's like, which of those metaphors stick with them? Obviously, something like Harry Potter's got a lot of um, sticking power, if you like, that whole fantasy, the magic, da-da-da. But also, um, on an individual story writing level, I find it's quite interesting. I worked with a boy some time ago who seemed to have very little imagination. He was a, a 10-year-old. He was always getting into big boy, always getting into fights, always having to stand outside the head teacher's office wasn't very good at writing stories. And then he started to write a story about, um, was it Tommy Rugrat, the little cartoon character that you sometimes see in crisp packets as well, you know. And he wears a, a nappy, a diaper, American diaper, and uh, drinks out of a baby's bottle. And he started writing a story about Tommy Rugrat. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, you could think, well, that's just that cartoon character. But actually, when I spoke to his father a little bit later, he said, actually, that this boy had never drunk out of a cup. Even though he was 10 years old and quite a lad, he still drank out of a baby's bottle at home. Um, his mother was no longer in the family home. I, we don't know what that was to do with. At school, he managed by drinking out of a sports bottle. But it was very interesting. And then his next story, in his um, jogging pants pocket he always kept a pile of the world wrestling characters you know these characters that do slam dunks and all of this stuff and um his next story was around one of these wrestling characters some hulk or something or other and uh, you can think oh well, that's just off the cards in his pocket but the, his story after that he had this great hulk of the wrestler finding the lost baby tommy rugrat carrying him back to his home. You know, it's very interesting. Those two characters, they weren't just cartoon characters or just of his cards that he collected. There was something about him. You know, he was that Hulk. He was getting into fights, da-da-da. And he was, you know, the baby rugrat needing to drink from his um, bottle. I just find it fascinating working with children and their story metaphor. Absolutely fascinating. And I think the main thing is we just take it as the metaphor. You know, I might have my idea, my interpretation of the, of the story, but I would not mention that to the child or to the parent or anybody else. It's just his story. But there's um, you pick up when a story is that they've written is significant for the child. You feel it. It's quite an intuitive response. And in a sense, I try to respond by respecting that story, you know, typing it up, get, making sure it's well presented at, at the end and, and all of that. And also showing interest in the story. We don't need to, we're not in the, you know, it's teaching we're doing, we're teaching professionals. We're not working as therapists or, um, in school. Um, I, I train teaching professionals. Um, but it's about noticing the engagement of the child with particular stories they write there's an energy about them. And to show that we've read their story, we're really interested in their story. We ask questions about the story and we respect it by the way it is um, completed and we publish their story, give it to them. 
It's nice. So yeah, so he's obviously as as a child, he's seen these characters on TV. So he's seen Tommy from the Rugrats. He's obviously watches wrestling. He's seen the Hulk Hogan. And he's obviously something about them. Some of their actions maybe have really resonated with him, which has made them, he likes them. And he sees himself in them. And that's why he writes about those characters. So he's kind of picking those bits about him within that and maybe not realizing it on a conscious level, but subconsciously he's doing that for those reasons. And that's probably quite common, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's very much not on a conscious level, you know, and also we can think we can see, you know, neuroscientists can see that the process of the right hemisphere is more concerned with story making, holistic, visual and also dream images, also early attachment of the child, whereas the, the left hemisphere is much more analytical, logical. And the whole story, the flow with the story is much more a right hemisphere process, as is the, you know, the unconscious creation of dream images. I mean, what do they do? They take, they take our experience, which might be quite, um, you know, dispersed, the, all the different things going on and somehow can give us a story when we wake up. It might not be an everyday cause and effect reality, but it gives us a story. And I think, okay, some dreams you don't really need to reflect, but other dreams can be quite powerful. You think, oh, yes, we can reflect on those. And it's it's not like a direct um, logical thing. It's like we can look at it from different angles and we can learn something. and. Um, someone who um, I had a lot of respect for when I started working in this field, Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote a book called Uses, Uses of um, Enchantment, talked about <clears throat> this search for meaning that we have through writing stories. I mean, I think great writers do that as well. They're making sense of their experience and, and it's doing it on another level. Apparently, metaphor in modern Greek, which I don't speak, actually means uh, an elevator, a lift that takes something from one level to another. I find that fascinating. Really fascinating. That's quite nice. It's quite fascinating. And also, I kind of see story like someone has these experiences and maybe images, but putting it into a coherent story in this search for meaning is is uh, I often think of I did I did do my first degree in physics which was a long time ago before I went into education and psychology but I was always fascinated by carbon and diamond uh, carbon in diamond and carbon in coal both of them are just carbon but the diamond has the atom structured in a crystalline format whereas coal is in 2D. And I kind of, and also in physics, you get this equation, which is about um, structure, which is negative entropy, relates to information, which relates to power. So I see stories as taking elements. The story structure is like creating this crystalline edifice for the purpose of conveying information meaning and when that comes from the child it, it's around their personal meaning of their experience 
that might sound a bit highfalutin, but I find it fascinating. <laughs> no, I, 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 I like that. And it is, I see it is, I think we mentioned this in a previous podcast, is there is, you can have, almost have like three or four different individual events which are on their own insignificant. But when you tie them, those four events together, that can have a huge significance. And that if someone's lived through that, that's their story and that's them telling it. And you might have had one of those experiences, but without the other ones, you don't have that context. And that's what's made that story is those four things happening all together has made that person feel how they are. They've been on that journey. Um, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, there's the, the personal development, but I think also clearly stories, fairy tales, particularly that we've, you know, through the generations we read to children, they hold some cultural meaning. Um, you know, sometimes we like to review them a bit. Victorians like to review their fairy tales a little bit and treat them in ways that we might not. And today people are writing stories, perhaps they don't like so many of the evil um stepmothers that you know what i mean we need we we take them for new generations bring in um something that <clears throat> if we take the basic fairy tale format the main character is living in a state of poverty and desolation they have to move out into the world overcome obstacles you know it may be picking um stinging nettles while having made a vow not to speak for seven years in order to save her brothers who've been turned from princes into swans, um, and sacrificing herself for this altruism uh, to the extent she's about to be burnt at the stake. But then there's a, a magical happening. And in most fairy tales, there is this transformation that happens. It might be a magic lamp, a magic crystal, a fairy godmother. Um, which moves into, you know, from the prince becomes the king, the princess becomes the queen. It moves onto a different, a higher, more empowered, empowered level of being for the individual and a celebration. That's the sort of elements of most fairy tales, um, which, you know, and obviously the Greeks were wonderful at that as well. But, it, you know, it, there, there's a lot of power in that and wisdom. There is, and it is. You see, you can see in a lot of stories, it's it's kind of that escapism. So if you think of the classic Cinderella, the situation she's not in, she wants to escape, and the all those events happening allow her to escape. But you can say exactly the same about Harry Potter. Harry Potter's living with the Dursleys and not enjoying life and they don't understand him he doesn't want to be there and then he escapes this magical world and i think a lot of people kind of jump on that because maybe they feel they're not understood or they might be a bit alone and almost waiting for this magical moment to happen mm, yeah it's interesting you say escape like when i think of cinderella i think of her not so much escaping so much as kind of having this ambition for something new and perhaps a little bit of envy of what the stepsisters are experiencing there <laughs> um yeah yeah it's uh yeah interesting i think a lot of them have because like cinderella she had a mum and a dad and life was happy there was a life she should have had and she had a life another life Harry Potter had parents. There was a life he should have had. 
but he had that life. So there's lots of little bits. And you, as you said, you, what you take from these stories and what I take from these stories are often completely different. How you see it, those stories, we based on your experiences. And that's what's great about them. Yeah, I think what's the 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 given stories, you know, that in the books that are written by someone else or handed down through the generations, I should say, I think we we take from them what we need to take from. Um, you know, whereas children encouraged to write their own stories, um, not in a particular genre or you, you know related to a particular tradition of uh, story. It's very interesting and really um, powerful how the stories they write, especially vulnerable children that I've worked with quite a bit, um, their stories are almost like their own case studies in, in the metaphor. And this ability to express in this way, I think, you know, it's very similar to what happens in art therapy, play therapy, drama therapy, you know, this is uh, children expressing uh, feelings that are out of awareness, or we can say unconscious, and projecting onto the story characters. But we can also, as well as using those mediums, play, art, we can also encourage them to use actual story writing to do that as well, and, and at the same time, to develop their writing skills. And I suppose as well as actually the character portraying information, often the setting, so either the location or what that sort of thing, that can also add a lot of information to a story and reflect on either where they feel they are, where they want to be, where they, it can give you a lot of information through there as well. Yeah, an awful lot. You know, you've got the, um, if you've got, you know, you're in dark wood with the goblins of the dark wood, you know, it's very different to being with the wise dragon who lives at the top of the mountain. And um, it's interesting to look at stories and to think about the different metaphor from, um, if you like, a psychological point of view, how that metaphor is resonating with the child's internal emotional world. I mean, we can see that very much in the fairy tale, of course, you know, with the... Um, the dark unconscious, the unconscious that Freud talked about, the unconscious that is um, laid down often in infancy when experiences have been overwhelming, too much for the psyche to cope with. And um, so those sort of images will be the, you know, the evil giant, the wicked witch, the goblins of the dark wood, etc. And then there will usually, as, as I said just now in fairy tales, be some transformative element. So it could be the magic lamp, the fairy godmother, as in the Cinderella story, something that helps us to move beyond that. And working with children with story, as I've done a lot of, it's quite interesting. Some children who have had very traumatic experiences are not able to put in that transformational element. You know, often there's a catastrophe that happens each time. And sometimes we can help them, let them write their own story, but just say, I'd like you to find a magic object in this story that can help you. So that will often tell you what they want 
where they want to be or what they think might happen rather than just always maybe this event always happening and they don't see any other way is it might you're helping them to see there could be a different way just by saying what happens if this happened so you're not telling them you're giving them the what if i think giving them a what if but also on another level just ex- accepting what they write um but you know if we go to writing in the classroom very often the tasks and they are important of course the the spelling the punctuation the grammar you know the flashbacks the beginning the middle and end they are um really about learning the techniques and the skills of writing writing stories as well but it doesn't necessarily engage the children in the flow the flow of consciousness that is needed for writing creative stories. So I think a lot of schools are starting to do more of that now. There was a time when it seemed to be all on the spelling, grammar, you know, dissecting, analysing. Not saying that's not important, it is important, but also to give children the time, you know, as in the the big right that, as I said just now, the, the schools often do, for the child to really go with the flow of the story, just to allow them to explore what they need to explore and, and acknowledge that. Definitely. I think there is a huge, now we, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, writing to me is a very creative thing. And sometimes the physical aspect can really get in the way of doing that so if they've got with dysgraphia dyslexia there could be things where they've got something they want to put down on paper and they struggle how to put that down so it's it's important when you're doing that if they are struggling with that you kind of got to help them by removing those barriers because you want to hear what they're saying so sometimes it doesn't have to be handwritten it could be dictated it could be done on a computer it's you want to hear the story. And I think that's a really important part. It's not that they have to physically write it. You want to hear the story. Yeah, I think there needs to be a balance. You want to hear the story. On the other hand, you also want them to use that energy to uh, increase their skill in writing. Um, I remember a little boy who I worked with who said, oh, I used to just get really angry, but now all that energy goes down my arm into my hand and into my pencil and I can put it into my story. So I find children who, of course, if a child uh, needs support, they should have that in place anyway. So if they're dyspraxic they, and they need to use a laptop, that should be the, the main uh, normal way for them to record. On the other hand, I think we want to encourage children who are able to, to be writing. And I find children who don't like writing get upset by writing it once they get engaged with a story they're engaged with they've got their heads down and they're scribbling furiously i think you know that's that's very interesting because they've got something to say i think that is it's it's that need the want to share and sometimes for them it's overcoming their worries about writing generally if you really want to do something you want to write you will do that and some children that's the bit they maybe struggle with that what they're going to write, what they're going to share, um, and how you can help them start those stories. Yeah, exactly. And I think making sure that there's an audience for their stories as well. You know, perhaps it's the teacher. If the whole class 
got 30 children and they've written reams. It's a lot to reflect on all of those stories. But you can construct uh, feedback from other pupils to put them into pairs or small groups to listen to each other's stories, make comments on each other's stories. You know, you can uh, elect some editors from the class to look at. I think it's very important that what the children write, that they get feedback and they hear other people listening to their story, taking it seriously and giving them some verbal response. And you've mentioned before, as part of your therapeutic story writing groups, that you use um, the story starters. So you use those opening. And that's really helpful for those who go, I know I used to go blank when you write a story. It's like, well, what do I start? And those story openings, those starters are really a great way because you don't have to give them one. You can give them a couple and they can choose one which works for them. And that will hopefully set them off. I think that's great. And if, if you want to go down that route to, you know, it might be Henry, Henrietta Hedgehog peeped out from under the bush. She was feeling worried. You can have a group discussion on why Henrietta might be feeling worried. So there's sparking a little bit of stimulus and then go into the writing. Um, we do those stories in the therapeutic story writing group that start with animal characters or fairy tale characters, particularly to keep the metaphor at arm's length. And we certainly don't make any interpretation of the stories. However, in class, in lots of different situations, there's some, um, like for social uh, development, often stories are used that uh, we can say are in the um, middle unconscious, if you like, in everyday reality. So they might not be at the forefront of our awareness, but there may be issues we want to bring into awareness. So issues perhaps like, bullying um, that's gone on in the playground. So you want might want to make a story about a child like me in a school like mine with this event happening, which is different to the fairy tale um, and the fantasy animal characters that you might use in the therapeutic story writing a situation. And again, with children um, on the autistic spectrum, you might want to do more of a social story, which is giving them a little bit of metaphor, but is much more teaching them how to behave in the everyday. So there's, you know, there's the stories that are more related to the unconscious processes. And often in those stories, you don't have to have cause and effect. You know, you can have magical unicorns, you know, giants, everything. Whereas in the everyday reality, it's still a metaphor more mundane metaphor you know a girl like me in a school like mine it's not me it's not my school but it's um much more set in cause and effect in everyday reality and in those stories it's much more about um looking for strategies to deal with with the situation so i think you know there, there's a huge range of story obviously <laughs> and to think about what sort of stories we're using when and and why and how we respond to them so and there's lots of stories can give you lots of information so my one of my nephews he is he always struggled to write he couldn't write fiction he couldn't uh, partly he may have struggled with his emotion but he couldn't really create stories he struggled with it when he did write 
those stories that he did write were often factual based. So he was into dinosaurs. There'd be lots of factual information coming out about the dinosaurs. And it was very, this happened because this dinosaur does this and this dinosaur does this. Therefore, it's almost like the outcome was already decided because of that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, some children feel more comfortable writing those factual stories like that. Uh, but there may well be. I remember my, my son, he wasn't that, you know, excited about writing stories. But now and then he did come upon a story he wanted to write and, and um, you know, his own creative stories. Now and then, not terribly often. But there was Jack and the Beanstalk was his favourite um, fairy tale. And there's something about that climbing up the beanstalk and, you know, taking on this giant. And uh, he was a very minimalist writer when he was at school. But I remember one day I went in and he'd written four pages, his, his version of Jack and the Beanstalk. So, you know, I think perhaps even with your nephew, there may be something that connects with him and he could perhaps take that and um, make it his own. So what else is there we can talk about with these sort of stories and metaphors? So obviously, as you said before, you're never going to kind of say in your situation, what would you do? Because you want to keep it at that arm's length. You never want to relate it to them personally. They might choose to write personally, but you'll never want to ask them, what would you do? You'd always be going, what would, what would, what would uh, Henry the Tiger do in that situation? It's always asking and thinking about it in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, particularly working with children on the SCN register. I think vulnerable children with emotional behavioural difficulties. Um, I find the stories they write, it may be a different character and a different setting. Uh, if you give them a story open, it may be a different feeling. But after writing four or five stories, it's interesting to see what are the emerging themes and uh, for some children, the emergent theme will be looking for a parent figure that may take the role of a, you know, a puppy and a dog or whatever. Or it might be looking for nurture, for nourishment. It might be escaping from danger. In different stories for different characters, you will see that the child is, in a sense, um, restoring. Children and also adults who've experienced trauma, and a lot of these children have experienced trauma, um, the process of healing is very much about telling the story and restoring it and telling it again. And there's something about allowing the child to be the narrator that can help them step out from that difficult story. And they can do it in another guise in the next story. And it's um, this idea of assimilating experience in order to accommodate it within the frame that one has developed within oneself to make sense of the world. Very interesting, the restoring that goes on. I'm just I'm, I'm imagining, because I suppose in some situations, obviously they've, they've lived through these things and they're going to retell it. And sometimes these stories just won't have happy endings because they maybe can't see how it could be happy or they're trying to work out, is there a way I could have done something different to avoid that situation? 
other children would really sit there and let you go, this is what I want to happen. This is what I'm looking for. If this happened, this will be the best thing ever. It's, it could be a really fascinating thing. I'd, I'd love to sit there and just try and read lots of stories and try and work out across those stories what are those messages. Be, it would be absolutely fascinating. It, it is fascinating. I mean, the children I work with mostly being uh, primary and year three, um, I think very rarely are they writing a story consciously to deal with something. It it comes as our dream images come. It comes from giving them a sense of uh, security. We call that emotional containment in the sessions. They know what's going to, you know, how it's going to work. They know that they're going to be listened to. They know they're not going to be put down. They know that they're not going to be uh, criticised for their handwriting or their spelling that we're focusing on the meaning of the characters and we're interested in what's happening with them. And we can also, that metaphor in the story gets extended in the drawings that the children do to go with the story. So we can look at the drawing and think, you know, try to give them a nice big piece of plain A4. Where's the main character on the story? How does the child feel the space? What colours are they using? And so we can help the child tease out the, their story by commenting on their picture as well and asking them interested questions. Well, that's the thing. It's always the asking a question without giving any judgment, without you generally probably giving them a suggestion of why. It's, it's, it's that openness. It's why is that there? What's going on here? Is he afraid? I'm not going, is he afraid because of this? Just you've got to leave it at, is he afraid? So they can answer why. Yeah, and, and usually I'd phrase it like, I wonder if he's feeling afraid. And they might say, well, no. If you remember, I remember saying uh, about a giraffe that was put in this little hut in the picture. I said, I imagine he's feeling really trapped. And the child said, no, he's feeling really safe in there. You know, it's, it, it, it's interesting. And I think it's the, the interest of the adult in the story, leaving the story with the child and certainly not interpreting it or analysing it in any way, but following the energy of the child, seeing how engaged they are with writing it. Um, just You can tell from their facial gesture how they're, engaged with the story or not. Um, I think just showing them that you, you've taken their writing seriously and you've thought about their story is very powerful, both in supporting yeah, their emotional well-being and their writing skills. And I think a lot of children, um, what they want, and I'm going to call it attention, but they want time, they want someone interested in what they're doing, they want to share what they're doing. And through that story writing, they're expressing themselves and taking an interest in that is a really powerful way of doing that. It is. And also just entering into the shared space of story is very powerful. You know, I think um, uh, Winnicott, who was a child psychologist, talked about the reverie between the mother and the newborn infant, the eye gazing that happens with the newborn infant. I remember that with my own son. and. Well, my husband said, what have you been doing? I said, we've just been looking at each other. But what I find interesting when you're telling story, and I always like to tell stories by heart to groups, 
when I was telling stories to an assembly, I'd have 400 shuffling children. You start telling the story and you can hear a pin drop and all their eyes are with you. The same teachers do that with the class book. Everyone's with you. Or if you're just reading a story to your child at bedtime, you enter this uh, magical world, really, of story metaphor. You know, the neuroscientists would say that's the right hemisphere engagement. <laughs> you know, another word is we can just say magical. So um, right hemisphere or magical. Or both. I think as if, if a child... The child experiences that. The child experiences when someone's telling them a story, they're lost in that story. So if you can give that back to them, they're going to feel amazing as well. If you're not lost in their story, are you really listening? Are they worth your time? Are they worth listening to? Because I listened like this and I love it, but why aren't they listening? So there's, again, listening to that story and responding to them and being engaged is really important. I think so. I think so. It's um, Beyond who looked at the the development of the child in terms of the emotional and cognitive development just said how important it, it is that we give back this empathic verbal reflection to the young child when they're developing language. And I see this as a great opportunity for that empathic verbal reflection. So we show the child we've listened to their story we can empathise with the characters in their story. But it's not just a question of empathising. We actually give back some verbal reflection. That also supports the child's emotional literacy. We can paraphrase the feelings that the characters are feeling um, and give that reflection to the child. So we will be extending their emotional vocabulary in that way and, and by responding you're encouraging them to write more and to express themselves more and tell them that sharing is great and right and they should be and you're giving them lots and lots in so many different ways you're giving them positive reinforcement yeah absolutely and i think um obviously all of, as i said earlier the, the spelling and grammar and all of that is hugely important but not to insist that that's done all the time to sometimes allow children to have this more of flow of consciousness writing and especially working with the more vulnerable children in the small groups I will type up their stories with correct spelling and punctuation for them and then they will reread it from that version um, so it doesn't become laborious for them the typing up but they are developing skills around coherence in story, they're de developing description of characters, description of place. They're doing a lot, you know, from the, the literacy curriculum checklist. And I think just touching on that, it's important that if you're listening to someone's story, that you're not in the middle of the story going, oh, actually, you should have used this word, or actually, how have you written that? You should be in the story. The listening to or you feedback about the story, you talk about the story, that grammar, the spelling, that might come afterwards. That shouldn't come to me in that moment because basically what that child's going to hear is I told you this amazing story and you picked up on I started the sentence with the word because. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. That's what they're going to get from that. Yeah. Um, so it's important that you're engaging with them about the story. Those other bits, as you said, by typing them up, you're then modeling the spelling. You're showing them this is how it's spelled and this is how so you're helping them as they then learn to read that later on as you do that and i think it was just 
that helps them develop those yeah, skills as well. Exactly. We don't have to do everything all the time. We can break it up. And I think sometimes um, the bit that is about the flow of story, that flow of consciousness writing, that writing to meaning can get a little bit marginalized by all of the spelling, grammar, beginning, middle, ends, etc. I think, yeah, just yeah. keep that, yeah, that more give the, the child the opportunity to write the personal meaning I, th- I think if you think of writing the bit that gives you the spark the bit that glows is that creation the other bit help it and they polish it but you need that spark and you need to cherish it and you need to make it grow um and that's the thing if you if you kind of lose that part there isn't a spark there's no need to write why should i write why should i read it's you need to get that spark and you need to help it and keep it to grow and those other bits will follow they'll find if they're not great at it, if they've got dyslexia or dyslexia, they'll find ways to support them in that but you just got to keep that that the the creation part going yeah and i think it's interesting talking to writers creative writers Often they don't do a a sort of a whole plan of how their story is going to go. They start writing and their characters speak to them. And I think sometimes that can put children off if they're asked to, you know, plan too precisely what they're going to write. I think it's good. Sometimes, of course, you need to do that. But I think it's also good to give children the opportunity. Just you might give them a little story opener, a starter, which you've talked around a bit, and then just let them go with the flow. For me, whenever I used to do that, it was I literally, you'd give me an opener and I'd literally, I would see that in my head. And I'd literally, I'd see that character, I'd then go, almost like I'd be looking around as that character, I'd decide what I'm going to do. So, yeah, I'm very much, this story is going on in my head. I'm watching the story or I'm helping move that story or I'm putting things into the story and I'm seeing how we react and things like that, which is generally how I would react to that sort of thing. And then that's what's coming out of my pencil on the paper. So it's very much I'm going, I'm, I'm living that story as I write, I'm thinking about it. And the order it comes out might be completely thing. And I suddenly realize as I read it back that we made a very big jump going from there to there. How did that suddenly appear? And as you get older, you can you have to move away from and then suddenly yeah <laughs> it's great as a child you can do everything with and then suddenly but <laughs> as you get older you've got to go well it's got to come from somewhere and it, so it helps you as you sit there and go so i'm i'm very much i'm gonna call it a brain dump person where the story comes out and then I kind of reflect on it and think about things. And that's how I personally write and would do things. Yeah. And I think really important to encourage children to share with another child, with their peers, for them to give them a bit of feedback as well. So when you have to tell that story to one or two or three other children, you will get that some of that feedback. And so I think very much developing those speaking and listening skills and giving critical uh you know, support to each other can be um, cultivated. Yeah, because they sit there and go, where did that come from? Exactly, right. and then the person will say, well, I had it in my head, but I didn't put it on the paper, you know. So, um, and that's often the way, if you're really into it, you will be missing some of those details around the edge. You've got the main bit, but those bits like, where did that come from? How did you get here? Mm. Like, oh, yeah, I didn't, oh, yeah, I put that down. You almost jumped to... Like in a film, 
it suddenly says 24 hours later. It's kind of you do that in your head. <laughs> um, but that person listening to it, you've got to help them go there. So that feedback and listening is really important. Yeah, yeah. It's like keeping that inner world and the outer world. It's interesting. I think when we write on paper, you know, if we tell a story, it's one thing that like we tell it, comes out of our mouths and it's gone. When we write something that is significant for us, it comes out of our inner world. We put it on paper and it's out there in the world for people to read. And I think that's why children with poor self-esteem can't cope with that. Often it gets screwed up, thrown in the bin, crossed out. Maybe, But maybe they just don't like looking at their handwriting quite often, you know, my experience. But um, so I think... Um, really acknowledging when children are writing stories that are their stories, how delicate it can be and um, really treating what they write with respect and not bringing our ideas of what their story should be, but hearing what their story is, using active listening skills, wondering about the characters, wondering about the situation, just showing them that we're interested in their story and we're taking them seriously as thinkers and writers definitely so thank you for coming on the show today trisha loves talking about writing stories again um I give a lot, a lot of, as i'm going through I've lots of little stories i remember not many but i remember a couple of stories i really engaged with when i was at school um there's one i loved and the teacher hated it um <laughs> I'm trying to go, what did that mean? What was I writing about? What was that? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to self-analyze myself 20 years ago or more uh, of my story writing. What was I writing about? Which part of that of my per was I projecting? So that's quite fascinating. We sit there and I can't really remember. There's just two or so I think I remember. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was like, why did I write that? Where did that come from? What was I thinking? Where was I going? What was I upset with? What was I it's fascinating and i'd love to actually maybe go through my daughter's stories and just try and sit there and maybe read a blanket of them and go what's the common theme it'd be fascinating well maybe get her to read them to you i think rather than take them yeah but it's interesting that story you wrote 20 years ago still stays with you i mean this is the power, the power of story metaphor you know I don't know if it stayed with me because the teacher hated it, which therefore I hated that. <laughs> or I, what, I, just, I can't tell you. There's somewhere, somewhere it's in there. It's been holding on to something. There's a lot of energy around it anyway. I often bring up my, my secondary school and need therapy on stuff on the podcast. I bring it up. <laughs> um, so Trisha has given me some links to share and I'll be adding these to the show notes. I'll also be adding uh, Trisha's contact details and you can find the show notes on our website, www.thesendcast.com. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. Um, and please leave us a review or share what you think about the podcast. And let us know what you want to hear on the podcast. Let people know. Let us know what you think is really valuable. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of the guests on the Sendcast, like Trisha, are speakers at our virtual Send conferences, or they've recorded their own training course. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND, not just the SENCO, that is effective and affordable. 
Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back to another episode of the Sendcard. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Enjoy the day.